I'm delighted to have Ben from ATEC joining us today. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Mm, thanks, Ref. Thanks for having me. Now, you've got a really cool solution um, in, a, in an interesting space that I think a lot of listeners wouldn't appreciate how big of an impact it has uh, when you first kind of mention it. It's clean cooking. But before we get into ATEC, I'd love to know a little bit about your background. You're living in Australia. And um, how did sort of an emerging markets clean cooking solution <laughs> come about? Where did it all start? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Raf. It's, um, I mean, uh, for me, it's a sort of a, a sort of evolution of a journey over a, a few different uh, phases. I mean, I always was keen on looking at how could I use use the time that I have in, in the best way possible. So, I mean, I originally started off in the in the corporate sector to sort of just build up a bit of a skill set and then uh, went off and worked in uh, Oxfam uh, for a few years and, and really enjoyed that work. But I could see also that the limitations, particularly from a scaling perspective of sort of the, the traditional NGO approach, uh, but through that got quite exposed and interested in this idea of social enterprise and using basically the, the business principles to to solve social and environmental problems. Um, so yeah, so we enjoyed that time with Oxfam, then an opportunity came up to work for the School for Social Entrepreneurs, which is a social enterprise incubator, uh, and really enjoyed that. That was a, a great organization to work for, but really wanted to get my, my hands on from uh, doing something directly myself. Um, and yeah, coincidentally at that time, um, Engineers Without Borders, uh, we're just looking to start something up in Cambodia around this, this quite interesting idea of doing biogas uh, for households mm -hmm. in Cambodia. Um, so yeah, so I packed up the family. We had two daughters at the time and my wife and we moved to Cambodia to basically look and see if we could kick off ATEC. And it's gone from there now to over 50 staff across three countries. And we're now doing biogas products, uh, electric cooking products uh, and doing a lot in the carbon credit markets as well. So it's a, it's a pretty exciting time. That's quite an interesting journey in a way, because you've gone from Melbourne, where the, the School for Social Entrepreneurs is, and um, with your family to Cambodia, was there, I mean, had you been to Cambodia before? Did you, did you know what to expect? Was it what you expected? Yeah, interestingly, I, me and my wife had traveled to every country surrounding Cambodia, but not Cambodia <laughs> uh, over the years, uh, just as backpackers, stuff like that. So mm -hmm. um so we kind of knew what we were getting into in, in some regards, but not actually Cambodia's. Um, and yeah, it was a for us a, a very interesting, exciting opportunity. Our, our daughters uh, at that stage, was back in 2015, were quite young. Mm -hmm. um, so it gave us, we, we were quite passionate about the idea of giving them exposure to other cultures and countries. Um, yep. So yeah, so that was, it was a good experience. Definitely had a challenges living in Phnom Penh uh, yeah. it's, it's got some great stuff about it but it's not the most kid-friendly city going around but yeah it was a really good experience last time I was there it was like a, a kind of construction site there was so much development and things happening um, mm. and like you say it's a, a kind of vibrant exciting upcoming city yeah I, I mean it was just the, the the safety was actually really good it was more mm -hmm. just the, the lack of activities and green space for kids oh uh, really um, so yeah, i was thinking like more of... out at home or hang at a cafe kind of thing right yeah i was thinking more of all the cars and bikes and everything zooming around um yeah well we we actually bought a tuk-tuk and converted mm -hmm. it into put child seats in that and my wife used to drive that around Phnom Penh so yeah she was quite famous as the uh Bareng female tuk-tuk driver <laughs> uh, around Phnom Penh. That's quite cool. So, mm. I mean, you're not, were you trained as an engineer or how did Engineers Without Borders come about? Um, obviously. Yeah, so that, 
that, that's an interesting point. So I'm actually not an engineer. My background's mm-hmm. um, uh, international business and marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously I raised that when I was talking to Lizzie Brown, who was the CEO of uh, Engineers Without Borders at the time. They were like, look, we've, we've had the engineers do some initial prototyping. We're really looking for someone to turn this into a social enterprise. So they were quite happy not to have someone from an engineering background. Uh, so it worked out well. That's brilliant. So tell me more about what they got you doing there. And and um, it was biogas, did you say? Yeah, so we originally started off with a biogas product, um, which was basically looking at how we could solve this problem of not just clean cooking, but also sanitation uh, and improving agriculture uh, as well. So how our, our biogas system works, for, for those not familiar, is uh, they're a pretty amazing organic system. Uh, you have a large tank, various types of material. Uh, You put your animal manure in green waste, kitchen waste, you can even connect a toilet to it. Um, And then you have a bacteria in there called methanogenic bacteria uh, that basically breaks that down into um, uh, methane gas, uh, which is just like LPG, which you can use for cooking, and then also an organic fertilizer. So one of these systems will produce anywhere from 500 to 1,800 litres of gas per day, uh, which is anywhere from... Uh, an hour and a half to three hours cooking time, and then around about 20 tonnes of organic fertiliser per year. Um, so, yeah, so they're, they're a pretty amazing system. The great thing is in Cambodia, you've got lots of small-scale farmers who uh, have this waste available, and there's no real sort of trade-off of them putting the waste in there. So the traditional practice would be to, say, putting the manure onto the, onto the farm, Um, but what they can do here is they can put it in the biodigester. It actually, you still get the fertilizer that you can put onto the farm at the end, but it's actually in better quality and the grass seeds have been broken down as well. So it's actually much better to use and safer. Then you get this free gas, uh, on top of that as well. So it's a, it's a really amazing solution. Um, so when I first got there, the main thing was we, we'd done these early stage prototypes, um, and it was really a question of, okay, well, can we convert this into a commercially scalable product? And um, yeah, that was quite an interesting journey on many levels. I mean, one part was that basically the prototype, we couldn't transfer directly into a product. We basically had to sort of redesign and rebuild it from scratch. And then dealing with uh, trying to find a, a manufacturing partner who could contract manufacture for us was, was quite, a, quite a crazy journey as well. Uh, through that process but yeah it it worked out quite well and then we've just gone from there to bringing in various other types of technology around um, pay as you go the electric cooking product range uh, and really looking to looking to solve this clean cooking problem uh, as much as possible this decade uh, across the world that's that's interesting if the what was the main just out of interest the main issue with the the scaling the prototype was it just the way that it 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 had been designed because i think this happens a lot where Mm engineers designers or entrepreneurs you have your concept and then you kind of flesh it out and you can get it working um but then the question is how do i turn this into as you said a business and how do i make it so that we can easily produce and easily ship and easily sell Mm. you know something something new and innovation so what was the learnings Mm. there first of all what was tricky and how did you overcome and and what are the things that that um, you would take from that process yeah, I'm, I mean, the main thing from uh, was doing that prototype was you're working with whatever existing materials uh, you have available. Uh, and it's not really a question of how do you produce this commercially. It's just a question of 
can you make it work is kind of that first goal. Yeah. Um, so the, the original sort of prototype was uh, a water tank. Uh, so it's a um, LLDP water tank, sort of you see the, the common sort of rainwater tanks we have uh, here in Australia that are that sort of semi-rigid plastic or yeah. rigid plastic um, is LLDP water tanks. And one of those had been converted into a biodigester and that was the prototype, uh, which, was, which was all well and good. Um, but yeah, you, you can't just convert water tanks commercially. Um, you need to redesign it as a single production uh, mold or, or a series of molds that can then actually commercially manufacture the, that sort of end desired outcome rather than sort of piecing it all together. Because mm -hmm. um, you just end up with too many design flaws uh, or construction flaws in, in the tank. And yeah. I think that was really the, the really big tricky thing for us at the start is we wanted a product that people were really happy with. Mm -hmm. um, so and one of the big parts of that is having uh, sort of a good flow of gas, which means you need to pressurize the gas, uh, which can right. be done. But it also means that you put a lot of material uh, stress into the system as well, because basically you need to pressurize the tank, mm -hmm. uh, which you can do through basically gravitational forces. Um, but by doing that, um, if you have the tiniest little hole, basically it's uh, the gas is going to find its way out uh, and create yeah. issues for you. So you your design's got to be really robust uh, to be able to withstand uh, those extra pressure. But you made it work. <laughs> yeah, it took, it took quite a few uh, design uh, iterations. Me and, yeah. um, me and Lockie, who was our, our engineer at the time, we... Um, yeah, I mean, none of us were biogas, neither of us were biogas experts. We had a, a manufacturer <laughs> who claimed to be an expert in tank manufacturing. And yeah, after that first production mold, we found mm -hmm. out he had absolutely no idea what he was talking about. Um, <laughs> so that we, we learned some very hard lessons. I think we did three, we're up to design version three within 12 months. Okay. Um, so it was very, it was very lean startup, build, measure, learn. Uh, and somehow we survived. Like at this point, you're selling to the Cambodian market or was the, the goal always mm -hmm. to kind of, you know, ship these things globally? Yeah, so, so this was always going to be a design for the Cambodian market. Mm -hmm. um, and part of that was you, you want to make a robust design that can work in seasonally flooded uh, markets. Um, right. So to be able to do that, you need to design it a bit more upright so they can still access it while, while the surrounding area may be under flood water. Yeah. Um, and to do that, you're doing it as, a, as like a water tank and, and large, basically any large item that's filled with air is really not going to be very cost effective to ship. So you, you're always looking to manufacture yeah. that locally. The good right. thing is you, you're doing what's called rotomold manufacturing, which is um, done on site. Like most countries in the world now have rotomold manufacturing for water tanks, septic tanks, biodigesters, etc. So um, it's it's not too hard to find it is the uh, manufacturing option. It's just getting the product or getting the mold into the country and then off you go. Yeah, because otherwise you're shipping just like a giant plastic container on lorries and stuff to to remote areas yeah. of Cambodia. And and the customers mm. for this would be typically you know, obviously off, off, off the grid in a way like, um, rural, rural locations with, um, you know, in, in particular farmers, did you say, because they've got the, the raw yeah. kind of ingredients initially? Correct. Yeah. I'm, I mean, the, the main one in Cambodia is, uh, cow manure. Um, mm -hmm. but interestingly, mo over 90% of households in Cambodia now have access to, uh, grid electricity, okay. uh, and it'll be getting in close to hundred percent over the next few years. Bangladesh is 
is at 100% of households now have electricity. So, so it's quite interesting. Yeah, we we think of countries like Cambodia and Bangladesh and them being off grid. That's that's dramatically changed over the last 10 years, uh, which is really good news. And so has extreme poverty. So, you know, like over the last mm. 10, 20 years, it's incredible strides that have been made. But there's still, I think, you know, from even from your website, I think it says 4 billion people who don't really have access to to modern cooking apparatus in a way. And I'm a big fan of Hans Rosling's work, um, uh, Gapminder Foundation, and they've got a website called Dollar Street, which is really worth a visit if um, if you haven't been to it, where, where you can basically mm. put in, uh, I mean, a lot of his work is kind of saying we shouldn't be saying, you know, developed and developing markets and stuff like that, because actually people are just at different levels in different countries, whether you're mm. on a sort of level one is a dollar a day, you know, level two is like $4 a day. But if you if you kind mm. of put in a, I don't know, $100 a month or something as your income on Dollar Street, you can kind of see the cooking apparatus. And, you know, I guess we take so much for granted, um, uh, you know, being able to just turn on the stove and <laughs> and uh, cook a meal. But um, mm. if you're in that if you're in that um, income bracket, you're really cooking with wood, aren't you? And and um, whatever mm. you can get your hands on, in mm. quite a, quite a basic fashion, right? Yeah, and I think this is um, I mean, it, it is a huge global problem. It's four billion people, so it's half the world's population. Mm-hmm. Um, it's costing the global World Bank released a report last year. It's costing the global economy two point four trillion dollars per year in a combination of health costs and lost economic opportunity. A majority of that is on women, uh, yeah. which is about the, the equivalent. So that's around about $3,000 per uh, household per year. Uh, and it's about the equivalent of the national GDP of Italy, uh, which is, wow. so it's, we're not talking a small number here. And at the same time, it's creating about a gigaton of uh, greenhouse gas emissions, which is about equivalent to the global airline industry. So this is not a small problem we're talking about, but I really like the point that you just raised before about developing or developed. And it's very true. I mean, I lived in Phnom Penh. I've never seen so many Bentleys in my life <laughs> living in Phnom Penh. And, but I, I very much think that countries like Cambodia, Bangladesh, I mean, generally South, Southeast Asia and uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, these are very much emerging markets. Um, and these areas, I mean, Asia is probably... A little bit more more ahead, but things, general indicators of health, well-being, development, etc., have come a huge way forward, which is great news. And we're now starting to see that those access to essential services, such as um, access to electricity, uh, we're seeing increased economic opportunities. We're seeing things like access to information through smartphones. Uh, Cambodia now has more smartphones than people. Uh, all these things are really helping to accelerate that forward. The one that's lagging a bit behind is most of these countries still 60, 70, 80% of the population is cooking with wood. Um, yeah. So, so, but that's, we're getting to a point where they haven't really had a great solution uh, until recently. Now we have more scalable biogas solutions and we have electric cooking solutions, uh, which are both great for the household, the safest solution, as well as great for the uh, environment as well. Um, so I think this is the next big one that will tip over that hopefully we're talking into 2030 that like countries that are um, we'll generally call it biomass, which includes wood, charcoal, et cetera, biomass cooking free. Um, and I think that'll be a huge achievement, uh, particularly for, for women and, and that sort of self-empowerment of women in these countries. Yeah, because in many of these countries, there's, you know, 
um, very defined gender roles in a way. And, and the, mm. you know, this, the talk I like from, you know, hands about the power of a washing machine is, is an incredible Ted talk. Mm. It's worth listening to. And the same, I think with, you know, modern cooking apparatus is just so important mm. because the time it takes to go walk and collect wood and same with water and, and, yeah. you know, it just eats into a day. So what, what time is left for mm. education? What time is left for, for the family and for, for bringing in further income? which, um, mm. you know, can help you move, you know, up to level two or up to level three. In, in if we look mm. at it in, as a game of kind of self-improvement and, and family, you know, family improvement. So I, I just want to yeah. linger for a second because that's an incredible statistic that you, you mentioned there. So all of the world's aviation in terms of carbon, are you talking about or emissions coming mm. from all the world's aviation are, is on a par or, or less than the amount of emissions coming from people cooking with with wood and and other things they find is that correct? correct so if we correct so if we convert uh the entire the that four billion people across mm -hmm. to clean modern sustainable cooking um mm -hmm. so that's a combination the two best solutions out there are biogas which is 100 percent renewable uh, and electric cooking, which is super, particularly induction cooking, which we do, which is super high efficiency and has mm -hmm. a significant carbon emission reduction. Uh, and as great, uh, grids continue to get greener, will be 100% renewable as well. Uh, if Nepal's an example, it's 100% renewable grid electricity. It is, um, yeah, we'll, we'll be basically just solving this clean cooking problem. Uh, will be the equivalent of solving every carbon emission from the airline industry. Um, so, of course, I mean, we still need them to, to, to pull their own weight. We but... still want them to do, yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but you're right. It, it's not a small. It's not a small amount we're talking here. We're talking about what, what they call a gigaton in carbon markets. And also um, the social, so... the social improvement. Because I mean, flying is frankly a luxury, and um, mm. uh, you know what we're talking about here is is going to be can change the lives of, of so many people. Um, in just such mm. a, in an everyday way, as in a simple way. Mm. Um, to come back to the kind of biogas reactor, you you started in sort of that department. When did you start looking at solar and 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 other solutions, the electric side that you've been talking about? Yeah, so so back in it was probably 2018. We were we had sort of done some great work and getting the the technology as in the biogas system uh, to a level where we were scaling it commercially. And we really saw this access to finance um, challenge for customers. So for them to be able to buy a system up front was too expensive. So they needed to be able to break it down into payments over a period of time. Uh, and our original business plan or thesis at that time was we'd work partner with microfinance. Um, but unfortunately, the story around, uh, I mean, traditionally microfinance in Cambodia has not been particularly great. Um, there's what you, what you call over over securitization. So basically, in order to get a microfinance loan in Cambodia, uh, you have to put your land title generally uh, down, which could be worth, you know, five, ten thousand dollars for, say, a five hundred, six hundred dollar loan. Wow. And if you then default on that loan, they have access to your land title. Um, so we were seeing, and particularly, there's some big issues in the microfinance sector from a um, trust perspective that we were losing around half our potential customers because they didn't want to take out another loan and put their, their land at risk or they'd already had a loan for something else so they couldn't even yeah. offer their land title. So how um, much so is, we like, is the bioreactor, yeah. sorry, just out of interest, what kind of money yeah, are we talking yes. about? Yeah, so now we sell it for $30, 30 US dollars a month. 
okay. uh, over 27 months. So that works out about 800 US dollars over the life of the product. Um, but then they own it from there and then it lasts mm-hmm. up to 25 years. Um, and, so, um, and that includes so, all their gas, all their gas providing they keep putting the manure and, and, and raw correct. ingredients yeah. in. So, so, so typically, and it is, it is good to view it as an asset. So these households, uh, they're typically generating about 40, $45 per month in income off the system. So basically they're able to pay for it while, they, while they're paying, paying off the system. Wow. Uh, and then once they've paid it off, then they're just basically banking that uh, and, themselves straight away. And what are they making the income from? The fertilizer, the natural um, byproduct, or, or the gas itself? Because that's probably harder to capture, isn't it? Yeah, correct. So, so it's the two main income areas. I mean, there is a, also a cost saving if they were paying for cooking before. Yeah. Um, so that can be a bit of the calculation, but the main main part is increased agricultural yield, anywhere from five to thirty percent from the organic fertilizer. Wow. Uh, and then also the the other main one is actually women. It, so you mentioned before about unlocking that, uh, or particularly women wasting their their time on the, these mundane tasks. So cooking, cooking with wood takes about 20 hours per week more than a modern cooking solution. That's right. half a working week wasted because you're using wood. So <laughs> what we see quite often is the, the biggest improvement is women going on to start small businesses, increasing the amount of agricultural farming they're doing, doing like high cash vegetables close to home, uh, et cetera. So that, that, that's where the other big part of the um, increase in income comes from. So were you able to overcome this microfinance issue? So what we went is like, okay, well, number one, we're, we're losing a lot of customers. Number two, we're morally or ethically not particularly comfortable uh, in putting people into this over-collateralized position. Um, so what we then started looking at uh, was, okay, well, how could we potentially do the financing ourselves? And so what we, what we looked into in particular or saw as a sort of a leading light was the Pago solar sector in Africa. So how that works is basically you install a, the Pago Solar into the household. Uh, there's no securitization. People are just paying it off on a monthly basis until they've paid off the system. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they if they don't pay, then the system switches off uh, until that payment is made. And that's kind of the incentive to make sure people continue to pay. So we then um, designed and patterned up a, a Pago integration for, for our biogas systems, uh, which was the first in the world to do that. So wow. the people... so. Basically, people could just get the system directly from us, uh, try the system uh, out for a period of time, and then start off those monthly payments from there. So we're actually doing in Cambodia at the moment, people can try the system for up to three months uh, before they then make that first payment. So that's putting it, from our perspective, that's putting a lot of trust uh, yeah. in the customer. But we, we believe, I mean, number one, generally Cambodians are pretty honest at this kind of stuff anyway and number two we really believe in the value of our product to those households so it's worked quite well for us um and yeah so we've rolled that out 95 percent plus of our customers now take that pay go option mm-hmm. um and and when we did that we were like oh hang on we're really onto something here there's this huge cooking problem uh biogas is great but it's only a small percentage of the market you need the livestock you need to be committed to both livestock and farming longer term to really for this product to make sense. Yeah. And we started to ask ourselves the question of going, okay, well, we're onto something good with this Pago clean cooking. What is the next best solution we think after biogas? So if you don't have the requirements, like the, the setup for a biogas system, because that's like zero cost once you've paid it off, what's the next best solution? So we looked at everything from LPG to ethanol to various types of electric cooking. 
And then we kind of came to this conclusion that in particular induction cooking, because it's 92% uh, efficient for stoves, which means basically the energy you put in, 92% of that converts into uh, heat for cooking. Okay. Uh, we could see that that would be the cheapest and most sustainable long-term solution, uh, both for the household and then environmentally too. So we um, that led us down the path of then designing up and, and launching our electric cooking product range, uh, which we now have out to market in, in Canada and Bangladesh too. I assume like zero emissions come from an induction cooker, apart from obviously any emissions associated with um, the the power <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. that is Great. generated to power it, I guess. That's quite a different problem though, in a way, isn't it? I mean, a biogas reactor is kind of one thing, but an induction cooker is a like completely different problem. So you, you know, how did you go about that? And I, I'm not sure I fully understood the PAYGO integration on the gas reactor. So that means I can, mm. I can get it free like a, a netflix subscription for like a three months three months of uh, um mm. and why uh, is it three months simply because it takes time for the fertilizer to to work or is that just like a, a yeah yeah so we don't do it everywhere we used to just do it uh when we delivered and you do your mm. first payment then and then right. when uh covid hit we were like okay well uh, what can we do to help people out to yeah. just continue to because obviously everyone's a bit worried about their cash flow and we knew it was a productive asset yeah. We knew once people start using it, they're like, oh, hang on, no, this is making me money. So right. I, I will, it's it's silly not to pay it off. Um, so yeah. that's when we brought in that sort of three month. But yeah, basically they use it. It's a box that sits on the gas line. Uh, they enter in a key code, uh, which they pay with via their mobile money provider, mm-hmm. uh, which is like on, uh, their banking app equivalent. Uh, and they enter in the code. If they don't enter a code, there's then a solenoid valve in the, in the box that switches the gas off. Uh, until they do into the code. Wow, so it's like an IoT element to to your product that enables you to control on and off kind of access. Yeah, correct. So our our electric cook stove is a full IoT SIM card connected device, mm-hmm. uh, which brings all these other benefits, which I can talk about uh, later. Um, but yeah, the the biogas is actually preloaded code, so it doesn't have an active internet connection. Um, right. It actually has preloaded codes, uh, which then match up with the ones that are generated from the system. Okay, that's super smart. So, yeah, because I was going to say, like, you don't always have yeah, internet. Um, and, uh, well, in fact, mm. you definitely don't have internet in some places. You don't have necessary cellular in some places. So so you decided that really the, the way to go was electric for certain markets. So how did you go about that? Yeah, so from us, it was looking, particularly in Asia, is this uh, rollout of grid electrification. Uh, and it's been a huge investment. Um, and a real big question we had during that time was like, there's always been this assumption that, you know, people, people are still cooking with wood because they don't want to pay for LPG or whatever the case is. But once we started digging under the surface, um, particularly when it came to doing some of our split testing in our, in our marketing, we saw that actually the price wasn't really as much of a concern as people uh, assume it is. What is actually a really big concern with LPG is actually safety. So um, I mean, we don't kind of think of that here in uh, Western countries because it's such a well-regulated market. But if you go on a Facebook feed in Cambodia, for example, uh, it's not too hard to find a, a video shared of an LPG bottle or, or shop blowing up uh, wow. because all the bottles are rusty or they haven't been filled with the right gas, the right pressure or whatever the case is. So we saw that safety was a huge concern. And so that was one of the points that led us towards, well, the great thing about electric cooking, particularly induction, is 
it only works, it, it only turns on if you put a pot on there. If you take the pot off, it turns off. So that's a great safety feature. There's no open flame. Uh, there's all these uh, sort of top of the line safety features for the product. And then it's about 50% of the running cost compared to LPG. So an electric cook stove, our stove in Cambodia, you'll typically be spending five to $7 a month in electric costs uh, on the product. Um, so it's super cheap to run. Um, and then it's modern, it's safe. It just, it literally ticks all the boxes. We published an article uh, on Next Billion. I don't know if you've come across oh, that yeah. before, but it's yeah, guys out of the US. A thought leadership piece on our thought was that electric, electric cooking will be the global standard uh, by 2030. We, we all have moved on from LPG and probably developing countries or emerging markets will get there first, followed by the sort of Western markets after that, because we have a lot more legacy infrastructure in place. Um, but yeah, it just be, beats it on every, every factor, basically. So it's kind of a leapfrog moment, a bit like going Correct. straight, straight to, uh, straight to mobile, missing out landlines and, uh, similar for some, some of the emerging markets. Uh, where mm, did you, where did you say it was completely a hundred percent renewable, um, earlier? Yeah. So, so. Oh, sorry, 100% renewable grid is yeah. Nepal. They actually have right. a surplus of hydroelectric, electric, uh, hydro dam electricity. Right. So the, the government recently um, uh, dropped the import tariffs for electric cooking down to 1% because they're scrambling to try and get more and more people to take up electric cooking uh, because right. they've got the electricity there and they know all the benefits they bring. Wow. So you had these designs and you started to work on the electric stove and then, but how, how's the power supplied? Is it just on grid for most of you, most customers or are these like having to connect to solar or other forms of power? Yeah. So, so the current product offering we do is, is grid connected, uh, households. Uh, and the reason we do offer that or we've started that is that's the majority of the market in Cambodia, Bangladesh, mm -hmm. uh, and, and in most markets, to be honest. Um, and for us, what we see is there's a, across the sort of southern Southeast Asia and Africa, there's a huge investment in both electrification to households and grid stability and infrastructure as well. Mm -hmm. So Cambodia, you know, 10 years ago, a lot less people had to connect to the grid. The grid was patchy. Everyone had a generator. And that, those are problems that have just disappeared now. Bangladesh is, is getting pretty close to that as well as are the markets as well. So we're very much following that macro trend of electrification, mm -hmm. um, which I think is always a, I mean, a lot of hugely successful companies are tapping into those wider macro trends, such as Facebook did with, uh, for example, smartphone uh, penetration or whatever company you want to pick always tends to be following on some other back of other trends. So that's, that's kind of the route we're going down. Yeah. Like surf, surf that wave rather than trying exactly. to create a whole new one. Uh, and so the, the, the initial markets, Cambodia and Bangladesh, like obviously Cambodia was mm. because you were, the, you know, you were there and that's where you started, but Bangladesh, mm. why, why not move to Laos or, or, you know, other Asian, um, neighbors, et cetera. Why Bangladesh? Was it the size of the opportunity or, or was there just a lot of synergies in the kind of offering? Not as many competitors. What, yeah. what, what took you there? Yeah. So we, we started in Bangladesh, uh, or, or we decided to move or set up Bangladesh as a second country in 2019. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we'd assessed about 10 markets across South and Southeast Asia by that time. And we saw with Bangladesh, it, a lot of, this was when uh, the majority of our work was actually biogas. We mm -hmm. saw with Bangladesh, a lot of similarities between the two markets. It's predominantly farming, 
or agrarian society, 80% of the population is involved in farming, much like it is in uh, Cambodia, although that's declining pretty quickly in Cambodia. Uh, and it was a floodplain country. Uh, and we saw some pretty good support of infrastructure in place, like around government support, and, uh, distribution networks, etc. So we thought we'd, uh, we'd, we'd go with Bangladesh. We were also considering Myanmar, uh, Indonesia um, mm -hmm. as well as other markets. But yeah, Bangladesh just ticked the most boxes. And, and that was for the bio product as much as the, the electric cooking? Correct, yeah. So we, we'd actually, we didn't roll out our first electric cooking product until 2020. Okay. Um, so we kind of already made that commitment. Um, but we saw as well that there was a lot of potential for this in, um, in Bangladesh too. And actually, yeah, they only a few weeks ago, the Bangladesh government announced that 100% of households now have access to uh, electricity, which is a huge achievement. It doesn't mean everyone's connected and have reliable access, but mm -hmm. just at least ticking that first box where if you want electricity, you can get it now uh, mm -hmm. is a really amazing achievement. So um, on the electric side, that that product now is is selling better, or I would assume in more volume than the bioreactors, because that's a much more convenient product for a lot of people. If you're not a farmer or etc., is that correct? Yeah. So so the market is is bigger for electric cooking, and at the same time, it's it's a more sort of consumable uh, or scalable product as well. So we can basically package this up and uh, ship it directly to the customer. Uh, we use third party logistics providers in each country, uh, which again has been a really big development in these markets is, is the rise of e-commerce as well. Uh, it's not just an urban thing. It is literally the whole country now are looking at buying things online. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just accelerated with, uh, with the pandemic. And yeah, so we're able to ship that product within 48 hours to anyone across the country. Uh, they can plug it in, turn it on, and off they go. They start using it. And they're using the same pay-as-you-go approach, right? That you're working with a finance Correct. partner of some kind who yeah. is, is like helping with the upfront costs because you're essentially shipping a... It's like I get a smartphone from a, um, a telco or whatever, right? And you can have the subsidized mm. model in a way. You, you walk out with a phone um, mm. and you just have to pay the monthlies. Is that the same? Correct. Yeah, so so the electric, the e-cook product range is... Yeah, between depending on what product you get is five to fifteen dollars a month uh, for the product. Then that's fully shipped, delivered to your door uh, with a set of induction ready pots uh, as well. So and it's literally we, zero upfront, or do you just pay a month yeah, or two? You, you pay you pay your first month on delivery. So, wow. So again, we're trying to make it as frictionless as possible to sign people up, well, much like you would a Netflix subscription or any other type of subscription style service. Yeah. The main thing here is we're, we're not doing it. It's an installment plan rather than a subscription. So they do pay it off and then own the asset. Yeah, but the difference of a Netflix is it costs them barely anything to add an, an additional customer, whereas, mm. you know, you're you're giving them a piece of hardware that's had to be, had to be manufactured mm. and shipped and stuff. So um, exactly. there's a bigger probably finance requirement. And, and are you working with partners on that? Because otherwise it would tie up so much capital for you guys, right? Yeah, so we're doing about 150,000 US uh, dollars in sales per month at the moment. Wow. Uh, and so we need to finance all that. Um, yeah. And so we, we have a range of uh, impact investors who are debt financiers uh, who then put into capital made that happen. Some, some out of Singapore, some Australia, cool. uh, some, some Europe and US as well. That's cool. So they basically get a return on, on, on that capital. And because of your 
uh, your tech, you can kind of tell them, um, I assume like the impact metrics, right? Like how much it's used and stuff. Do you get that data? What, 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 what do yeah. you, what do you get back from a cooker that's in field? Yeah. So, so this is the cool thing with, uh, particularly the e-cook stove is that data connectivity. So we, we have the GPS location, we have all the usage data on the stove as well. Um, and we're just in the process of developing an app to then so customers can track their own electricity consumption on the stove as well. Uh, which we see is a really important point because people are worried uh, how much electricity is this going to cost me because right. they're not familiar with electric cooking. Yeah. Um, so that Apple really helped overcome that that concern. And uh, yeah, these products, um, yeah, we get all that information back into a dashboard. Uh, so we're in the process of then looking at uh, developing analytics around uh, connecting usage to predicting payment behaviors and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So that's quite useful. And then the other big thing that uh, we haven't touched on yet, but it's really key moving forward, is then we can we're able to take that data uh, and use that to calculate that emission reduction uh, or that carbon reduction, carbon emission reduction, and then right. convert that into a carbon credit, which wow. we can then then sell on to all the companies signing up for net zero commitments, um, and then pass that. The plan is to basically pass the value of those credits up front to the customer. To bring this product down in in price and cost uh, significantly, so this is kind of the the key to solving clean cooking in our view is is to basically turbocharge it with carbon credits. Yeah, because I, I mean everyone's going crazy for carbon credits and offsetting because you know it, they're not changing their business practices maybe as quickly as they want to, and they certainly want to start you know being seen as a, a greener or more sustainable company. So uh, people mm. obviously buying all the offsets like um, forestry, you know, planting trees, all of these kind mm. of things, but you don't necessarily initially think of, of changing people's cooking preferences or, mm. or, 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 or um, you know, tech. So um, mm. how do you, how do you measure that? You kind of say, do you have to take a customer from that was using wood and then bring them onto mm-hmm. electric? Is that, is that the kind Correct. of goal? Because that's the biggest, you know, carbon change if you like or change of use um uh, but but you need to do that yeah. with you know hundreds and thousands of of families and and is the is the credit created for a certain period of time is it the lifetime of the cooker is it per year how does that work yeah so so basically you you're right um with the electric cooker it's calculated basically purely on people stopping cooking with wood and then using electric cooking instead mm-hmm. with the biodigester there's also you're capturing uh, cow manure, which would have emitted methane into the atmosphere, and then you're putting in the biodigester and then burning that methane uh, as, as as biogas. So mm-hmm. you kind of you have two sources of emission reductions there. But yeah, so you basically you do we, we do our credits under gold standard, uh, which is uh, out of Switzerland, which is regarded as as the overall sort of best um, standard for carbon credits. Okay. And so you, calc- you calculate a baseline and go, okay, if they're cooking with wood, this is how many emission reductions they, or sorry, this is how much carbon emissions they would be generating. Mm-hmm. And if we convert them to electric cooking, then this is how many carbon emissions would be required. And the difference is then the offset uh, between those two. Right. So, so if you take somewhere like Nepal, uh, which is the market we're looking at now, uh, basically you're getting 100% of that. Um, because you're you're going from uh, cooking with wood to 100% renewable. Uh, if you take Bangladesh and Cambodia, there is is some emissions in the grid, uh, mm-hmm. depending on the energy mix. I mean, both both are actually not too bad. They're better than right. a lot of Western countries, but there <laughs> there is some emissions associated with that. So you're getting the net difference between uh, those two as such. 
Um, so yeah, so basically you calculate that out, you're then verifying that via the usage data um, and then selling that on to uh, people who are, are looking to reduce or, or achieve their net zero goals. That's, so, that's how it works. So what have you, uh, so what, what have you saved in terms of greenhouse gases so far with the products? Like how many units roughly are out there? And um, uh, like, do you know your numbers on those things? Doing around 8,000 tons per year currently of emission reductions. Um, but that'll be increasing quite dramatically because we're really ramping up our sales now. So 8,000 tons that's not going up into the atmosphere that would, that what would have been if you, your product didn't exist. And then presumably, you know, several thousand households or, or families, you know, having access to clean, um, cheap, good cooking apparatus with no upfront cost. So do you try and measure any of the social impacts, like the, the kind of time saved and all that kind of stuff, stuff as well? Or? Yeah, correct. And, and I mean, that's one of the, so if you buy gold standard carbon credits, generally you're paying a bit of a premium. Uh, mm -hmm. Part of that is that they're also calculating those social impacts as part of that. And I think this is the, the beauty of solving this cooking problem and, and why I'm passionate and committed to it is it's, it's the only, and I've tried to look through it and, and find anything else that can achieve a similar thing. But it's from my perspective, it's the only problem that we can feasibly solve in the next decade that has a huge social uh, impact and a huge environmental impact uh, at the same time. Um, and you can actually monetize that environmental impact to, to uh, actually scale this to a, a much larger level and increase the social impact. Like there's no trade-off between um, yeah. quite often you're stuck in this problem of a trade-off between the environmental, the social, and the economic. There is no trade-off here. They actually complement and drive each other. It's basically win-win-win for everybody. And it's like as sooner Correct. as we can do it, the faster we do it, the more credits we kind of create, the, the more you know social benefits there are. So uh, is this what mm. you call your... I think I read you about your impact flywheel or what you're terming an impact fly, uh, flywheel, right? Which is, um, I assume, kind of, you know, being able to kind of create massive impact and, uh, at speed and scale um, using mm. using that approach. Can you talk me through what that, how you came up with that? Yeah, so so it's a um, business strategy or theory originally developed by a guy called Jim Collins. Um, and there's some great stuff on how Amazon used this strategically, the Amazon flywheel. Yeah. Um, you could also look at, I mean, there's various other companies that have done it too. Tesla have done a similar kind of thing over the years. Um, but it's all about how, how do you create a way of doing business that every time you complete a business cycle, it gives you more energy into that business, next business cycle. And so for us, this kind of was uh, sort of something we spent, it took us about a year to figure it out for ATEC. Uh, and then we published mm -hmm. that article, which is on Next Billion as well understanding okay well how can we we know there's all this great impact how can they actually play into each other to to accelerate each other uh through this process and for us we the way we see it is okay so we've got this cooking problem we know we've got these great technological solutions that are biogas and electric cooking uh they're in high demand people want them but um obviously they're they're cash constrained yeah. But they also generate this amazing environmental outcome, which we can monetize. So really for us, solving clean cooking is if we can basically monetize, particularly do pre-financing of, of these carbon credits, we can pass that through as, as sort of a reduction in, in uh, cost to the customer of what they need to pay. 
which mm-hmm. then increases the amount of customers that will sign up uh, to these technologies, mm-hmm. which then generate more carbon credits, uh, which you can then use to go out and, and uh, sign up more carbon credit deals, which then brings down your price even further. Uh, and then you can sell more carbon, carbon credits and get more stoves in the market. And really it's, it's this interplay of, of technology, the social and the environmental outcomes together. Um, and they actually drive each other uh, through this impact flywheel uh, approach, which is yeah, pretty exciting. Yeah, because you can just basically get bigger and bigger in terms of scale and you know, village to village, um, town to town kind of thing. Um, you know, mm. completely transform how everybody's kind of cooking. Everybody has access to it, but like, doesn't that create a problem? Because if all of these, like, how does it work if if my cooker stops working? Like, you've got mm. um, you've got all of these devices across you know bangladesh cambodia and places i guess you have to work with service partners and things like that because they're they're kind Mm. of on a a service model right it's not really a correct uh, they haven't they don't really own the cooker do they it like uh they kind of they do own own the cooker once they they finish the payment plan which is anywhere from 12 months to uh 27 months okay and what they've signed up to uh, so it's their asset at the end. So so we're not paying. They're not paying in perpetuity like a subscription is. It is an installment right. plan like the mobile. So plan. it's just purely for them to 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 get ownership. Um, but Correct. obviously, your your you got you kind of uh, the consumer wants it to work for ten years plus, right? I mean, I would have thought 10, 20 years. Yeah, yeah. So depending on, um, I, I mean, there's the product lifetime, but then there's also the carbon project uh, lifetime as well. Right. So depending on the technology you're talking. Typically, some, either seven years or 12 years seems to be about the, the range. You can go up to 15 years. Wow. Uh, and ideally, what we're looking to do is to calculate, okay, over, over that time period, let's take seven years, for example, um, is to go, okay, how many tons per year uh, are being generated? Okay, and then what is the price per ton we can get? Okay, so overall, that revenue and where the carbon markets are now and where they're going is the revenue off those carbon credits is actually greater than the revenue you generate off the stove. So effectively, what you're looking to do is you're trying to get these assets placed out in the field mm-hmm. that are generating this this uh, sort of this outcome, let's call it, of, of carbon credits, and then being able to use that. But rather than sort of you know trying to figure out a complicated way of like trying to transfer that value back to the user over multiple years, yeah, and then having to pay up the system. Is, is get the buyer of those credits to take that additional risk along with us. Mm-hmm. And obviously they get that credit at a bit of a cheaper price because of that risk of putting the money in up front, mm-hmm. which means then the user is paying a significantly less amount. We never want to give them away for free because that creates the wrong bit incentive yeah. structure for the household. They need to at least pay something uh, so that we know that they actually do want the technology, um, but it doesn't yeah. need to be significant. Um, but yeah, just getting the asset in, making sure it's being used and then monetizing the, the carbon credits. Um, so they, they get a great outcome. I mean, we, we get a great outcome and then environmentally there's a great outcome too. Uh, and ideally if it's working really well, there's even the potential to pass some of that value back to those households too in the future. Yeah. I was going to say, if the value of carbon credits keeps increasing, then it's kind of, yeah. Who, who actually owns that, that carbon credit? Like, is it the user? Is yeah. it is it you guys? And and um, you you obviously create the credit and then sell sell it on the market mm. to to a partner. But like you say, at the moment, is it is it a case of a credit is being generated, which is kind of like sellable, which then helps finance you know the next cooker in a way, um, rather than the cooker that it's come from. I, I'm I'm always yeah. a little bit baffled by the way 
this kind of funny maths around credits works. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's kind of two ways. One way is you basically you generate and sell the credits on say a six monthly yearly basis, uh, yeah. which is kind of what we started out off with biodigesters or biogas systems in Cambodia. We registered our first project. Yeah, because it's it's eighteen. You'll have you need a lot of assets, right? You need a lot of cookers or biogas reactors already yeah. in market for 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 it to make sense because one stove isn't going to change much, right? Yeah, exactly. So so you need a a, a mass or a, a scale that makes it because uh, there's costs involved with doing these credits as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but ideally, where we've seen and this has really changed in the last eighteen months is more and more companies have signed up to these net zero deals. Mm-hmm. Um, that they're looking to achieve. And part of that is going to be reducing their own emissions, but they're also aware that they're not going to be able to get there fully or uh, they need more time. And that's where carbon credits play a role, which is effectively a type of tax. It's just a market-based tax on carbon uh, that we're sort of looking at here. Um, so they're, they're looking to sign up deals that can basically uh, secure them a, a stream of carbon credits for yeah up to the next 12, 12 to 15 years, potentially. Um, that they can use to reduce their emissions uh, moving forward. Now, what we're trying to, what we're moving to, and because the the market's becoming a, a lot more uh, mature now, is people are now willing to put that money in up front, so that they can then get effectively they put the money in at the start and then get the credits for free or for a reduced rate over the, over the project period. Which and seems that, attractive, that, I assume, because the carbon credits seems to be going up and up and up. In terms of price exactly. per ton or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, and it's a it's a win win because on their side they're getting carbon credit secured at a particular price for, mm-hmm. for you know ten years plus, and on our side it means we can then take that carbon credit revenue and discount that off what the customer needs to pay. So yeah. we're not looking to hold this carbon credit revenue ourselves. Um, this is very much about us. How how can we solve this cooking problem by making high quality selling high quality solutions at below market prices? Um, because that 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 to us is the key. We're getting great biogas, great electric cooking at cheap prices. We're we're not just getting kind of you know the passionate or the early adopter customers. We're getting the mass market uh, then. So uh, and that's how we go from where we are now to hopefully by 2030 that clean cooking. This issue of of cooking with wood is in the past. So what's next? I mean, you've done or you're you know deep into a couple of markets. Where's hmm. where's next geographically, and how do you how do you make the flywheel turn faster for yourselves? And you know who are the partners? Who are the what's the way that we can hmm. that the ATEC can really um, help solve this global issue? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, we are we are an interesting one. I mean, uh, we we do sell and distribute product in Cambodia and Bangladesh, um, and uh, that was very much to prove what we're doing. But very much we see ourselves as a, a technology and. Um, finance slash carbon credit uh, company moving forward. So wow. providing these sort of assets or, or products out to market and then being able to bring in these carbon credits and uh, if, you, if we need pay-go debt financing uh, into that situation as well and then starting to work with existing distributors in other countries. So we're going to be raising, um, doing a all going to plan, a, a further capital raise later this uh, year um, to really start to scale out the tw- beyond our two markets. But rather than setting up ATEX in each market is, for example, in Africa, you've got this fantastic network of uh, distributors from the Pago solar sector mm-hmm. who really understand this business model, have huge customer databases, and we're just bringing in that expertise around product and expertise around carbon credits uh, and then packaging that up along with a, a potential buyer 
uh, so that these guys can go out and sell uh, a huge amount of, of stoves across the country and yeah, look at taking it out and, and solving it across multiple markets. So that's an interesting development in a way, because it's sort of like um, you started from a very engineering, you know, trying to make a biogas reactor work that would produce, you know, burnable gas and, and fertilizer in a pressured way, uh, cheaply that can be distributed. So quite heavily product engineering focused. But now you're talking like the future is really about being almost a tech platform or service provider or not open source, but, you know, in, in some way sharing your expertise with existing infrastructure providers or, or product providers in a way so that you can scale this mm. more more quickly and and yeah i think that's a pretty pretty cool kind of approach in a way because i yeah. assume uh, like there's a lot of places you can get a stove manufactured but you need certain specifications mm. and then actually the issue isn't really the stove if we're honest it's the creation of the 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 business model that allows an impoverished or, or, or someone sort of low, lower on the income scale to to get access to it cheaply, affordably, and in a way that mm. uh, they can pay for and enjoy for a good amount of time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I think this is what I personally see, I mean, more broadly, globally, is this next big revolution is we've had this amazing software revolution over the last 20 odd years. Um, but as we're starting to see, for example, in electric vehicle markets, other IoT markets is is bringing those software solutions off the computers or off the phones and into the real world. Mm -hmm. uh, and then that opens up all these other opportunities. So, you know, Tesla's the great example here of they took a car that was a disconnected device and made it connected, which then opens up. I mean, the electric part is amazing, but all this stuff around safety, around uh, self-driving, et cetera, in the future. I mean, the, these will be huge steps forward. Uh, within that sector. Um, and I think Completely. that's where a lot of these things are going to go is is once you bring a hardware, software, and then potentially this um, finance element if needed into the mix as well, it just opens up great quality products uh, to a much broader market moving forward. And that, that, that's that's where we see things, uh, things going. Completely. Um, Grant spoke with um, uh, Monarch Tractors just recently on this podcast. So, um uh, I don't know if you caught that one, but it's fascinating. It's basically the Tesla mm. of Tesla of tractors. Um, mm. <laughs> so yeah, why why not have autonomous um, tractors? Um, you know, doing all this work, you know, solar and other renewable power. It's pretty pretty exciting future when you think about it. Mm. And in terms of the steps that can be made, you know, in countries um, like you say, is that are kind of emerging economies, etc. They can make you know radical steps that are going to make us. I think a bit embarrassed in in some geographies that we're so slow to move away from fossil fossil fuels. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, uh, I mean, we've seen it in mobile phones. Uh, we've seen it in um, decentralized. Uh, what would you call it? Like mobile money. I mean, mobile money in these countries was miles ahead of smartphone internet banking that we have in our in, in our countries. Like, um, it's way more way more integrated and accessible. So yeah, I, I think we'll continue to see because you're working in a constrained environment where you have to think outside the box a bit more to make things work so um yeah i think there'll be some really really exciting stuff coming out of south southeast asia and um africa uh, around some pretty cool tech moving forward
Well, Ben, thanks so much for taking us through ATEC and everything that you're doing. And I, I really look forward to tracking the progress uh, of your company and, and your partnerships, et cetera. And I really hope that you're correct in that, that, that you know, clean cooking can be something that's fixed in, in this decade or, or, or within inside a 10-year period. So thanks mm. very much for taking the time to talk to us. Sounds great. Thanks, Raf. Thanks for having me.